Now, concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of the week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I may should go also, they will accompany me. This is the word of the Lord. Grab your seats. Pastor Jim, come teach us, please. Thank you. So I remember um, when each one of my kids was born, the, um, uh, you know, as you're a dad there in the room, I, I mean, it didn't have much to do other than provide a little moral support, but <clears throat> when the child came out, I watched that they would start breathing, because breathing is rather, rather important, right? I mean, we, what is it? We can go, what is it, three weeks, if you're healthy, without food, Three days if you're really healthy without water. Three hours if you're really healthy without your cell phone. And, <laughs> and three minutes without air. So air is critical. And I remember for uh, one of the kids, they came out and all of a sudden, the nurse, the, the delivery nurse, took that child and put it under oxygen. I mean, it was that quick she made that decision. And, you know, the doctor was attending to Janice. This nurse was on that child. And I looked at the child and I said, it looks a little blue to me. And it was starting to turn blue. The nurse completely ignored me. She was focused on getting oxygen to that child. And, you know, whatever it was, it went away rather quickly. And the child grew up and is fine today. But breathing, just taking breath, that is a sign that there is life inside. There's other signs as well, but breathing is one of the ones that you look at. Well, I did when my kids were born. And I can even remember, um, <clears throat> I can even remember when my mom passed away, watching her last breath, and then it was over. So breathing is important. It's evidence of life. Well, as we get into this passage, um, just some initial thoughts, because I see a similar thing going on here. Now, um, this passage, uh, it's actually, the tone of it is the first thing that impresses me. It's kind of just, Paul is just speaking matter-of-factly. This is what you do. And I thought, matter-of-fact, that's, that's a perfect text for a guy with my type personality to get up and preach, just straight matter-of-fact. You know? Here it comes. Now, I notice what's missing. Because if you look at the book of 1 Corinthians that we've been in for some time now, all the way from, from up until this point, Paul is giving corrections and rebukes. You know, there was the factions, the divisions within the church, and he rebuked that. There was um, some leader idolatry that was going on. There was a Christian that was sleeping with his stepmom. There were lawsuits between the believers. There was 
use of prostitutes, there was idolatry, there was getting drunk at communion, there was misuse of spiritual gifts, particularly overuse of the gift of tongues, and even struggles with androgyny. And so all that, and you get to this section, and he just says, okay, they had asked him a question about giving, and he just answers it. Well, this is, this is how you do it. See, in all those other instances, what Paul saw was a group of Christians that were not showing in their behavior evidence of grace, evidence that Christ had come into their lives, evidence that God had given them, them life. But he also saw that they were believers, and one of those evidences is you can rebuke a believer, and they'll respond. So that's what you see, chapter 1 all the way up through end of chapter 14. And then he gets to 15, which also is interesting because the chapter right before this passage, he is talking about the resurrection and transformation. So he's giving what I think is the why behind all the earlier stuff. It's because he's expecting the church to show evidences of their new life. Just like I would expect a child to start breathing, you would expect a believer to start as, they, as their spiritual life develops to begin exhibiting that. Paul was not seeing that. He was not seeing evidence of the transformation that you would expect to happen if you believe that Christ was raised from the dead. Now, transformation, uh, it's a work of grace. If you look at the book of John, chapter 3, Verse 16, it says, For God so loved the world that he gave. God is a giving God. And that is what we call grace. Grace, grace is evidence of, or giving is evidence of grace because giving is grace. They're one and the same. Now, the, um, the resurrection, which we talked about over the last couple Sundays, that is proof that this works because Christ was raised from the dead and he was transformed. And when you see Christ, you see the accounts of him and after, the, after the resurrection, he's walking around, he's talking to people, he's eating food. He's also passing through walls, appearing and disappearing. You see some unusual stuff, but you see what looks like a normal human being. You see evidences of this transformation. And as believers, we can experience that now. We can begin to experience this transformation from the moment you become a Christian. And then after we die, we get it completely. It becomes complete or finished. <clears throat> now, if believers are transformed, if we're being transformed, we become more like Jesus in our behavior. And Paul saw the Corinthian church was broken in their certain areas, not showing this transformation. He knew they were believers and therefore needed correction, and that's why he said what he did, chapter 1 through chapter 14. If you're not being transformed in your heart, as evidence in your behavior, then you're not experiencing the resurrection. If you're not being transformed in your heart, as evidenced by your behavior, you're not experiencing the resurrection. You're not experiencing that transformation. And apparently... The church of Corinth, uh, despite all that, they understood grace, at least when it came to giving, because they asked this question, well, what do we do about, um, what do we do, do about this need that we want to give to? 
This was in spite of all that other stuff going on. Someplace inside of them, they understood grace. They understood uh, that giving was to be a part of that. Therefore, this just matter-of-fact question, how do we do this? Now, grace is not the only evidence of belief in a Christian, obviously. I mean, there's lots of other things that we look for, and grace is not proof that a person is a believer. So let's make that distinction. But you also see when, when somebody becomes a Christian, they develop a deep hunger for the Bible. This was my experience. When I became a Christian in college, um, I was at an evangelistic meeting, became a believer. When I went home, I grabbed a New Testament off my bookshelf that had been sitting there gathering dust, just the New Testament. I read it from cover to cover in 48 hours. I couldn't put it down. That hunger, I got to know what this is. I got to know this God that I just met drove me to that. And that's true for a believer. We have this hunger to be in our Bibles. Uh, Another evidence of grace is love of other Christians. Love of, I mean, even Christians you don't like. And there's a bunch of them. There's a bunch of them. Another evidence is just thankfulness for whatever circumstance. These are evidences that, that there's grace in us and we understand this God that we've met. Uh, repentance for sins. Willing to say, yeah, I'm sorry, I was wrong. I don't want to do that anymore. Willingness to forgive when we are wronged, even if it's by people that we think should know better. Humility. I, I mean, you could, the list goes on and on, but you get the drift here. And giving is one of those. If we understand that God gave his son for us, then somehow that changes us. It makes us understand that we should be givers as well. And so this is what I think um, is behind that. You can go to the second slide there. Um, this was behind what was going on in, in, in Paul's response to this question. So just a little background on this situation. Historically, there was a famine going on in the, in the city of Jerusalem, in that area, and there were Christians there that were in need. There were Christians that couldn't, had difficulty feeding their families. And the churches of Asia, Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, and, and on the, on, in, in the area that is now modern-day Greek, these were all churches that um, the apostles, had, particularly Paul, had planted throughout this time. They all gave money to help the church in Jerusalem. There's also another thing going on here. The church in Jerusalem was primarily Jewish, and the churches in Asia Minor and, and, um, uh, and Greece were primarily Gentile. So they were crossing racial boundaries even to make this, these donations. And then what you see here is that Paul wanted to make sure that this gift would be ready, all ready to go when he showed up. That's why he's writing this, writing this, this passage. And that it would be faithfully delivered to those, that, those in need. Now, this is a particular type of giving we call charitable giving, where you're giving to uh, the poor. The other type of giving that typically goes on in a church is where you're supporting your local church. Now, uh, supporting the church is covered in the, in the sixth chapter of Galatians. I won't go into that. But sufficient to say that both relief for the poor and supporting your local church are, should be part of a family budget, 
regardless. They're both, um, they're both to be part of it. This passage deals primarily with giving to the poor, so I'll stick to that. The next thing we see Paul talk about is how giving should, should be. And I sum this up as giving should be rhythmic, it should be sacrificial, and it should be proportional. Rhythmic, sacrificial, proportional. That's basically what brings out. You see rhythmic and set in what he says here, the collecting was done on the Sunday of every week. This was a regular rhythm or recurrence or just it happened and happened and happened and happened. It wasn't a one-time thing. They were to do this regularly. The specific day of the week I don't think is as important as the fact that it is recurring. It happens again and again. And he said you should do this, um, well, <clears throat> Jonathan Edwards, an 18th century theologian, American theologian, said you should do this as an expression of thankfulness for what he did for us on the first Resurrection Sunday. Edwards ties this again back to the resurrection. Christ is raised. We are transformed. There's newness of life. Celebrate that. Honor that. Respect that. Give thanks for that by regularly. Resurrection happened once. Giving happens regularly. But they're tied. I, I, I just appreciate the way Edwards, Edwards tying those together. Second point here is that is sacrificial. See, Paul says everyone is to save up a little bit. Everyone is to give something. Everyone is to give something. It should be something that you, that you and then this comes from John Calvin, a 16th century church reformer. Giving should be something that you highly value. He thinks that's what the meaning is in the text there when, when Paul uses that particular word, lay up or store up for yourselves. You do with something that you highly value. Well, cash is something that, as Americans, we highly value. You can do a lot of things with it. Now, the amount that you give determines on whether or not it's sacrificial or not. Now, for example, there's an old saying, see a penny, pick it up all your day, you'll have good luck. So if I see a penny on the ground, I don't pick it up. All week long, I'll have a backache if I do that. <laughs> it's just not worth it. A penny is almost worthless today. How many of you save pennies? Nah. I, I, could, I could take a penny and toss it out here on the floor, and I'd get intrigued. Probably nobody would pick it up except maybe one of the kids. Right? It's, it's worthless. Now, a dollar? Okay. Mm, I might pick a dollar up. What about $10? Oh, I'd pick that up. $100? I'd pick that up in a heartbeat. $1,000? I don't think you'd hit it, see it hit the floor. <laughs> and $10,000? I'd be asking you for it before you dropped it. But you see what's going on here. As, we go, as you go logarithmic or you go exponentially up the scale, money becomes more and more valuable. It just depends on, on the amount. Well, that's a crude way to estimate what to you is sacrificial. Like I say, I wouldn't sacrifice my back at my age to pick up a penny. A thousand bucks? I'll spend a week in traction for that. So what Paul is saying here is that um, it should be something of, of value, and that is what we call sacrificial giving. Um, 
The next point is here, it should be proportional to your income. He says, as God has prospered you. Well, God prospers everybody a little differently. In some cases, very differently. And so that's where the gospel becomes very individualistic. What has God done for you? As the Lord has prospered you is a direct reference to, I believe, gross income. Not necessarily how much wealth you've accumulated, but how much you have coming in. Because again, if giving is to be regular, then what, what are you giving that out of? You're giving that out of your, your, your income. Your income is your opportunity to use what the Lord has given you to help others. And it's different for different individuals. And then Paul says, have it all collected before I arrive. I think there's a couple reasons for this. Commentators seem to bear this out. <clears throat> but he wanted to max, maximize the opportunity for people to give freely. <clears throat> as opposed to walk in on Sunday morning and somebody says, well, we got this need, how would you like to give to it? And think, all I got's a dollar. No, take the time, know about the need beforehand, save it up. So that when, you, when it comes to time, you have more than what you're carrying on your pocket. I think that's part of it. He also, um, um, I think the other part of it, not, I mean, I can't say this for sure, but from what Paul says in 2 Corinthians and other passages on, on, on the Bible, is he liked to keep, keep a distance from the collecting because he didn't want his presence as an intimidation or as a source for somebody to say, well, I want to impress the Apostle Paul to cause people to give. He wanted to do that themselves, just between them and the Lord, before he came, so he was not influencing how much they give. And then you see the last thing, says, you know, you take people that will take people that you agree with, you appoint people that you think are trustworthy to carry this gift back to Jerusalem. Now, I don't know if they were going to go straight back, but if they did, you're talking about 1,300 miles on foot. That's, that's a couple months worth of travel, plus a couple of sea voyages in between. I think what he was saying there is that you give it to the to people that you trust because that's the only way they're going to get it to Jerusalem without somebody eh, kind of skimming a little bit off the top to meet their expenses as they go on this trip. He wanted to see that all of it made it to Jerusalem to be given to the poor Christians in Jerusalem. He's honoring what the Lord is doing to the in individuals by honoring their intent. If the Holy Spirit said, yeah, I, I want to give to this and I'm going to do it, Paul says, okay, we'll see that that happens. We're not skimming anything off the top. So he said, you, church, you decide who is faithful and is, and is going to do this. And it's, it's a considerable commitment when you think about that. You're going to walk for 1,300 miles over a couple months to carry a couple bags of money. But that's what they did. And again... <clears throat> Paul kept his distance. He says, well, I'll go along. If, I, if, if it works out and it's necessary, I'll go along, but I don't have to. He's, again, distancing himself from the actual cash. He wants to make sure that, that there's never an accusation against him, of which, he, which could have been very, which did happen, actually, that he was preaching to get people to give money to him. Common practice by other people in the day. He wanted to divorce himself from that and say, this, my, my preaching is free, my gospel is free, if you want to give money for that thing over there, 
it'll happen outside of my hands. And also, again, like I mentioned, to avoid any, any accusation of coercion. All right, so the next slide. So this desire that's there in the, in the Corinthians, this desire that that's, that's, we have to give, where does that come from? Okay, so if you look at the world in general, belief in giving is actually very common. Most people believe that because they're well off, they can and should share with others. It's a natural thing. And that's because we're all created in the image of God. And we bear that image. We, should, we demonstrate that to the others in our actions. Now, granted, humanity is quite broken and, and disconnected from, from God, but there's still this faint glimmer sometimes of, our divine, of, of the fact we're created in his image and giving is part of that. So you see in, in lots of cultures, there is an ethic about charity, about helping the poor, about giving to others. It's there. The gospel doesn't necessarily have, um, uh, it's not solely in places where the gospel is taken over the culture. However, when a person becomes a believer, this desire becomes much more intense. And why is that? When we experience grace, when we experience healing, restoration, hope, hope for a life after death, forgiveness, when you become a believer and you're experienced to those things, you just had, you were just exposed to the most intense love and giving in the universe. Again, book of John, chapter 3, for God so loved the world that he gave. Christ died on the cross because he knew by doing that, he could have us. By paying for those sins, he could get us. He was that intense on it. And when you're exposed to that as a believer, that changes you. It changes your perspective. The experience of grace is also personal. Believers know Jesus personally. And there's a strong desire to be like him. There's a strong desire to emulate him, to identify with him, to act like him. <clears throat> His love for us, which we call grace, compelled him to sacrifice himself on the cross, like I mentioned. When you, when you know somebody that's willing to do that kind of sacrifice for you, you want to know who that is. You want to talk to him. You want to get to know the person. And it's just natural, and like I say, it's, it can be very intense, and it should be. So the next slide. Some of you may be asking this question, why is my desire to give weak, or why is it missing? Well, there's a... Um, there's a parable in the, in the New Testament. Jesus gives this illustration. It's called the parable of the uh, sower. And he gives this illustration of a guy that's going out to plant seeds, a farmer, and he's sowing the seeds around on the ground. And some of the seed falls here, and some of the seeds falls on a path, and some of it falls <clears throat> where there are thorns, and some of it falls where the bird. And he's giving a, an illustration of how, how, how individuals respond to... Uh, to God's, to God's word, to Jesus' teaching. 
And what he says in particular about the seeds that fall among the thorns, he says this, because he, he goes on to explain what this parable means to his disciples. The deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word. They choke the word. Remember I talked about breathing? I thought it's interesting that, that you know, you, if, you, if you put down, happens in my house, you know, if I'm not, if I'm, if I'm not uh, really aggressive about the weeds, they choke out everything. Especially the dandelions. I have a thing about dandelions. But um, what Jesus was saying was that the, the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, they choke out the word. And the word is there, is, 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 is the teachings of Jesus and the apostles, what we call the Bible. So, um, the, um, uh, what he's addressing here is, is, is well, it's a really strong word. It's called greed. Now, nobody likes to think of themselves as greedy. But let me read you what the definition is of the word greed. It's simply a selfish and excessive desire for more than you need. Wait a minute, I thought greed was about what I wanted. Maybe didn't really need the stuff that I wanted. No, this is a selfish and excessive desire for more than you need. Well, if this is, if this is your struggle, and I, you know, this is, I'm not saying I'm, I don't struggle with it too. You know, there's lots of times I see stuff that I need, legitimately need, and it becomes a very, very strong desire. That is greed. The thing of it is, is that that tends to choke out the influence that the Bible has in your life. Well, if your desire is to be like Jesus is weak in all areas of your life, other areas of your Christian life besides just giving, then this is likely what the struggle is over. Now, for some... Um, they can still be thankful, they can still be forgiving, they can still be, you know, the church attendance is not impacted, but they still don't feel that desire to give. And oftentimes that's because some people, and they tell me this, they don't have enough money. Well, what's needed there, if you think you don't have enough money, is you need a little bit different perspective and priorities. The truth is we spend our money on what we consider most important. Right? If you look at your checkbook, if you look at your bank account, where does the money goes out, that tells you what is important to you. And it's different to different people. So, the question is, if you suddenly lost your source of income, lost a job, you know, lost uh, a benefit that you relied on, lost your pension, all of a sudden that ended, and this has happened to people, they suddenly begin to readjust their priorities because now they no longer have that income. It's very typical for us in this culture. We look at our income and that determines what we spend things on. And very few people save, not, not that many give, and not that many people um, uh, you know, set aside money for emergencies. So we tend to spend by our income. So when your income suddenly gets cut, and some of you have been through this, you know you reassess your priorities and you learn, okay, I really didn't need that. I was able to live with, other, with, with less. The key here is to go through that exercise while you still have an income. That's what gives you the money to give. 
is you've gone through that thinking, you've gone through that process and said, well, I think we could do without this. And it also introduces sacrificial giving. You know, I'm going to sacrifice a night out a week that I go to, we'd go out to dinner just so we have a little bit more money to give. A third reason people don't give, uh, there's probably more than this, but these are the three I came up with, is you become cynical about how much difference your giving can make. You're okay with other areas of your Christian walk. You see evidences of grace there, but you just think, ah, can my money really make a difference? You know, maybe the church is not such a good way to handle this. You know, lots of things, but you become cynical. Well, what would happen if every believer in the U.S. of A., every evangelical believer, let's limit it to that, gave 10%. Giving 10%, by the way, is what we call a tithe. I'll talk a little bit about that, but I'm going to read to you an article that answers that question. What if the church tithed? The church today is not great at giving. That isn't exactly news, but it's a statistical fact. Tithers make up only 10 to 25% of a normal congregation. So tither, again, being somebody that gives 10% of their gross income to the church. Only 5% of the U.S. tithes, with 80% of Americans giving only 2% of their income. Christians are only giving, on average, 2.5% per capita, while during the Great Great Depression, Christians gave an average of 3.3%. So even the worst economic times, believers gave more typically than they do today. If we, and I'm saying just evangelicals, there's what, 30, 35 million of us in the USA, just we evangelicals in the USA gave 10%. I'm not including our Catholic brethren, I'm not including Mormons, or I'm not including um, Islam. But just in the US, if we as evangelicals gave 10%, an additional $165 billion for churches would be available to use and distribute. 35 million evangelicals, mean income in the United, average income in the United States is $51,000 a year. That works out to about $165 billion to distribute. The global impact would be phenomenal. And here's just a few things the church could do with that kind of money. $25 billion could relieve global hunger and starvation and deaths from preventable diseases in five years. Now, I didn't have the chance to really check those figures, but assuming that's true, that's phenomenal. And that's only $25 billion. We had $165, right? So, got $140 left to go. $12 billion would, could eliminate literacy in five years. $15 billion could solve the world's water and sanitation issues, specifically at places where the world, in the world where 1 billion people live on less than $1 per day. Isn't that amazing? And you'd still, you could spend a billion dollars to fully fund all overseas missions work. And you'd still have $100 billion left to do other things. If the evangelicals tithe, gave 10%. It's a little stunning, isn't it? 
Now, let's do a little comparison here. If the USA, talking the government, uh, well, the USA as a country, if we follow the economic trend that European governments do, which is using taxpayer money to solve poverty and other things just within our borders, our taxes would, would be well over 50%. That's typically what's happened in Europe. When they try to solve these problems, it's typically over 50%. It's interesting. 35 million evangelicals in the USA could do more for the entire planet by giving 10% than 240 million USA taxpayers could do only in the USA at over five times that rate. Do you see the disparity? It's not the time for this, but someday it'd be fun to do a, um, do a sermon on our idolatry of government. It's, it, we're ripe for it. Now, <clears throat> the example was tithing. Tithing is, is oftentimes a controversial thing in the church. You know, should, should Christians give 10%? And, that, and I don't want to go into that too much. I typically don't teach on tithing as something that, other than it's a good way to, it's a good way to enter a threshold of giving. It's a threshold. You get to a 10% of your income, you feel that. That's what we call sacrificial. You begin to have to make choices to get to 10%. It's also a threshold for the freedom and the joy that comes with giving. Because again, you get to 10%, you start to feel it. The problem with tithing, in my opinion, <clears throat> is that, <clears throat> and some people do it and they're fine with it, they don't, they don't have this heart issue, but I do notice it that you tendency to think, well, I'll give 10% to God, and the other 90% is mine. Well, in the New Testament, it all belongs to the Lord because he gave it to you. So what you're really doing is keeping 90% for you. That's what tithing is. <clears throat> I think the other aspect about tithing, again, I don't want to demean it. If you believe in it, that's fine. The Lord will honor it. But check your heart because... If you tithe, uh, you need to pull up your calculator about once a year, maybe twice a year, depending on when you get raises to determine what your giving should be. If you believe it all belongs to God and you're responsible to give it, you're on your knees praying every day. Just think about that difference. Giving New Testament-wise involves much more interaction with your Lord to figure things out. Should you give a taproot? Should you be giving here? Well, are you visiting today? You don't need to give here. If you're just here today, if this is your first time or second time, I'm not expecting you to give. Are you checking us out? Have you been coming regularly for a month or two, maybe three, and you're trying to decide, is this where I want to land? I wouldn't be, coming, I wouldn't be giving yet to taproot but I would still be giving to the church that you came from. Until you, until you decide, yeah, it's time for me to light here, continue to give there. <clears throat> Band, you can go ahead and come up at this point. If Taproot is your home community, if you are attending here regularly, if you're taught from the Bible while you're here, if you're making your connections here with other believers, 
then this is where you should be giving. Again, that's covered in, in Galatians 6. You know, it's, it's subject for a number, number of sermons, but we said that often. If this is your home, this is where you should be giving. So a couple of things I want you to consider as, you, as we... Um, we're going to sing, we're going to take communion. It's, communion is a good time just to, again, remember that Christ gave all for us. And that, that, that bread and that wine are symbolic of that. They, they allow us to, to remember in a very physical way what Christ did for us on the cross. But it's also a time you can reflect. Lord, do I struggle with greed? Lord, am I, am I doing with your resources that you've entrusted to me what you've asked me to do? You know, if the Lord says, speaks to you on that, confess that. If you're in a home gathering, bring that up this week. Say, you know, the Lord spoke to me on this, and I'm confessing it. If you need to change your habits of giving, um, go ahead and change them. Don't wait for God to change your heart because you confessed it. He will do that over time. You can go ahead and step out in faith now and begin to change your, change your patterns of giving. And if you're going to do that and you're at your home gathering, just give somebody else permission to come back and check up on you, see how you're doing with that. In this passage, Paul expected everyone at Corinth to give. There were no exceptions. Everybody could give something, even if it was a little bit. And that would be my encouragement. If you're not contributing to, to either your local church that you're... That you're you call your home, or taproot, start small. Real small, but just start and make it rhythmic. Now you can give online on our website and you can set it up to make it rhythmic. System, not automated system will do that for you. You can also go out to our connect table. We have giving envelopes out there. You can put a contribution in, check or cash. You fill it out, check what you want it to go for whether you wanted to go into our general fund, or you, which is supporting this church, or some of our uh, compassion or church planning or mission type funds that we have, you can select that there and you put it in the box. And we will, the finance team will faithfully see that all of that money goes to where you designate it, like it taught here. But if you're not giving, start small and just increase it over time as the Lord, promise, as the Lord blesses you. Giving is an evidence of grace. The question I ponder on that, like other areas, forgiveness, hunger for the Bible, you name it, all these evidences of grace, if I were to be hauled before court, would there be enough evidence to convict me? So consider. So let me pray for us, and we'll, uh, we'll worship in song. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for giving of yourself so that we might have life. And we thank you that you entrust us with your riches, not just your money, but um, yourself, that we might share it with others. In Christ's name, amen. <laughs>